Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 as we come back to our study of the gospel and today find ourselves looking at a passage dealing with the subject of the Sabbath, the Sabbath, which for some of us uh, may have been a part of your background, your upbringing. You might have been brought up in a home or in a, uh, a town where Sabbath ideas were prominent, businesses would close down. On a Sunday, people would generally refrain from activity. Some people, uh, you know, certain, certain, certainly in where I grew up, people would not play sports or practice sports or do anything like that. They would just sort of retreat from much of anything. You would go to church and then you would rest and then you'd go to church again. That was the cycle of the Sabbath. And those ideas are founded somewhat on uh, ideas about what the Bible teaches, at least the Old Testament teaches, about Sabbath. The word itself, uh, our English word, comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat. Uh, the Greek word, even Sabbaton, is also a derivative of that. Uh, the word is essentially a word that means to rest, to cease, to cease, I should say, to stop doing something, bring something to an end. You see it, uh, first of all, in a reference in Genesis chapter 2, after God had completed all of His created work, we're told in Genesis 2 that God Himself rested from all His work which He had made and created. So God Himself sort of established this idea of resting, of ceasing, of, of sort of bringing all that stuff to the end. And of course, we know that God eventually codified the idea of rest within His law, within the Ten Commandments. The, the Sabbath law was essentially about rest. Some people associate it with going to church or sort of a, a day of worship. But, but really, every day was a day of worship for Israel. The temple was always open. It was, activity was always going. Sacrifices were always taking place. The main idea behind Sabbath in the Scripture is rest. You hear it in the commandment itself, Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall, you shall do no work. Do no work. And because of this, you see, every time the Sabbath is mentioned, it has these kind of ideas about, about curtailing uh, labor. Jeremiah 17, take heed to yourselves, do not carry any load on the Sabbath or bring anything through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath. In Nehemiah 10, it talks about not uh, bringing wares or trading grain on the Sabbath. We will not buy from anyone on a Sabbath or a holy day. So no commerce is to take place on the Sabbath. Exodus 35, you're not to kindle a fire on the Sabbath, Exodus 16, you're not to bake anything, boil anything. You just cook things ahead of time, Exodus 16, 23 says, and you leave some leftover for the next day. So you're just eating cold leftovers. And if you violated any of these things, Exodus 32 says, whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. So, so the, the idea of rest is pervasive and the penalty is severe. Now, there are plenty of advocates for Sabbath keeping in our own day. Like I said, some of us are in traditions, uh, Protestant churches who have some notion 
of a Sabbath. There are Sabbatarian, uh, uh, Seventh-day Adventists who practice some sort of uh, Sabbath. There are Seventh-day Baptists even. There are other Sabbatarians who are out there in one degree or another. I'm not sure if they all, if they want to take the whole enchilada, you know, maybe slice some of that stuff out. They, they may want to, you know, take a day of rest, but maybe you know, the lighting the fire and all that stuff, that might be a little, little beyond where they go. But they have this basic idea of, of sort of resting and, and not doing anything. Well, that idea of sort of a tailor-made Sabbath or sort of a partial Sabbath or modified Sabbath, it might fly in, in our society, but it didn't fly in the ancient world. Sabbath-keeping was serious business. It was, it was serious focus for r- rabbinical studies and debate. There were two tractates in the Mishnah that are dedicated to this alone. In fact, the rabbis had identified 39 basic actions that were to be uh, um, avoided or restricted on the Sabbath. There are all kinds of things that you were not supposed to do or, or all kinds of things you were not supposed to carry or all these things that you were supposed to be careful about, um, about being uh, uh, drawn into. Tailors, for example, couldn't even carry a needle in their pocket on the Sabbath lest somehow the needle puncture the cloth and they be accused of mending a garment. Uh, those who... Uh, had any kind of fire it had to be remain I should left burning or if they had no fire they couldn't light a fire you couldn't take a bath lest somehow if water spilled on the ground you'd be accused of cleaning the floor Uh, if you did walk somewhere you were limited to just 3,000 steps so you better you know get back 1,500 steps out 1,500 steps back of course unless you were going to a place where you had food because food was considered a part of your domicile, a part of your uh, house. So if you had placed some food somewhere, then you could walk 3,000 steps to that and be considered having returned home at that point. So you could get 3,000 steps away. In some, in some rabbinical circles, you could then turn around and walk 3,000 more steps and it just got more and more complicated. All of these discussions about binding and reaping and sowing and plowing and grinding and baking and threshing and lighting and extinguishing and kneading and separating and all this stuff was all defined down, still is defined down, honestly, in the modern day Mishnah about stuff that you do or don't do. That's why if you go into a, a, a strict Jewish community today, we'll say New York or Los Angeles, there are places in those uh, cities with large Jewish populations where you have Sabbath day crosswalks. That is to say, on a Saturday, on the Sabbath day, you, you, you don't punch a button because any kind of electricity is considered lighting a fire. And so the, on Saturday, the crosswalks automatically show a walk and don't walk sign. The rest of the day, you have to punch the button. Or you have Sabbath, we're all very familiar with Sabbath ovens that you, you put your food in the day before and then you set it and it comes on and it turns off and you never have to violate the Sabbath by punching any buttons. They even have Sabbath day elevators, which would be maddening, but they literally stop at every floor on the way down. So you never have to punch, you know, which one you're going to. I mean, they can, can go to ridiculous extremes, even in modern day society. But that's really just a token of what took place in the ancient world. I mean, these people were fastidious in the observance of the Sabbath, and it was serious, serious business. 
As a matter of fact, every time you uh, see a Sabbath controversy in the Gospels in Jesus' early and middle ministry, it's always in the context, or I should reverse that. Every time you see a, uh, a commitment or a determination from Jesus' opponents to murder him, it's always in connection with the Sabbath breaking. When you see some contemplation of them wanting to kill him, it's because somewhere in the, in the immediate context, he had just violated the Sabbath. In other words, they could tolerate a lot of things, but one thing that they were in no way going to tolerate was him undermining their Sabbath system. Well, today we find ourselves in a passage where he's doing just that. He is doing something that they believed violated the Sabbath. Not the Sabbath per se, but at least their interpretations of the Sabbath. These laws, these 39 rules that they had later on top of God's law that had all these things that's created this incredibly tense and burdensome environment where honestly it would be difficult not to break the Sabbath in some way. And yet what Jesus does we might say, flouts their standards. And as we'll see as we go on, intentionally so. Intentionally so. Because what he wants to do is he wants to expose the hypocritical, self-righteous hubris of these religious leaders who had not only refused to acknowledge the law in its original purpose, which is to show them just how desperately they needed God's mercy. But in its secondary purpose of teaching us to love God and to love our neighbor, they had distorted and twisted that as well. And it finds its focal point in this Sabbath law. Now, just to turn our attention to the text, let me read it for us in Matthew chapter 12. From 1 all the way down through verse 14, Matthew says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did? When he was hungry and those with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
This is an account Matthew tells us took place at that time, not necessarily immediately after the events of Matthew chapter 11. We might very well translate that about that time or around that time. As a matter of fact, it took place probably about a year earlier uh, at the time of the Sermon on the Mount. We know that because that's where Mark and Luke uh, place it with more definitive uh, wording about its timing. And we know that it was uh, at this time that he was uh, finding himself in a number of places when he was in opposition. Matthew, however, uh, places the story here for us because in chapter 12, uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12, he is grouping together a number of instances of opposition to try to help you and me understand the reasons why the, the religious leaders were turning against Christ. He puts them all together so that we can get the f- sort of the full picture. But he says it was at this time that they were going through these grain fields. Could have been corn fields, we're not sure. But they were going through and they were picking something off of the, uh, off of the plants. These were little pathways that would have been cut through the fields, shortcuts, if you will, that people could have taken, and they were walking along, and we know where they were going. They were going to the, to the synagogue, down in verse 9, very clearly. So as they're walking along these shortcuts and these pathways, and the disciples maybe hadn't had breakfast that morning, they were hungry, and they decided they would reach out and grab a few heads of grain and rub them together in their hands so that they could get the husk off. Now, we don't know how, but somehow the Pharisees saw this. Maybe they were on their way to the synagogue as well. They looked up ahead or looked off to the way and they saw all of this taking place. And so they decided that they're going to confront Jesus. They're going to do it right there on the pathway in the street before they ever get to the synagogue. Look, they say, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And they're not upset by the way that you would pick someone else's grain. That was actually a law allowed. Book of Deuteronomy said that that you allow people to grab a, a piece of fruit or you grab something from your, from your yard as they go by. That's not in itself sinful. It wasn't considered stealing. The issue, the accusation, was that they did this on the Sabbath. And in the, in the mind of the Pharisees, this was clearly forbidden behavior because they had taken the Sabbath law, they had interpreted it in a certain way, and then they took that interpretation and they formulated embellishments on top of it, one after the other after the other, until you had the point where there was this prohibition against any kind of activity like this, even the simplest thing as reaching out and grabbing something off of a nearby plant and putting it in your mouth. Of course, the Scripture doesn't define Sabbath breaking this way, never strictly forbids some activity like this. This was really nothing more than a man-made regulation, a man-made law, a, a, a way that they had established that was primarily for the condemnation of others, for the accusation of others. Not only for the accusation of others, but even for the, for the building up of themselves. This was really a distortion of the Scripture. It wasn't just a distortion. It was, in fact, an evidence of their blindness. 
because they didn't take a proper understanding of the Sabbath and this, and then, then just sort of intensify it to make it more rigid. That's not what's taking place here. This isn't just an intensification of an understanding of the Sabbath. This is a complete distortion. They had distorted their views of the Sabbath which meant that they had distorted views of their own sin, which means that they had a distorted view of of their own need before God, a distorted view of their own righteousness, and ultimately a distorted view of Christ. Their twisting of God's word, and particularly the Sabbath law, led to all kinds of blindness. And in a kind of perverted way then, their religious zeal, their zeal to take a religious stand wound up being more about their own pride and their own hubris and their own perversion than it was about anything about true righteousness or about the truth. In fact, their condemnation of Christ and his disciples over this was an indictment of them, not of Christ. And Jesus, of course, understood all this. So so this leads him to want to expose them. As a matter of fact, as I said, uh, you get the impression as you read through this And we'll see a little bit later, uh, this was not sort of happenstance. Jesus seemed to be rather intentional in inciting people on the Sabbath. And so he doesn't pass up the opportunity. He exposes them. He exposes their twisted, uh, perverted interpretation. He exposes their misunderstanding of the law and he exposes their pride and their self-righteousness by spelling out here a number of principles that they should have grasped for properly understanding the Sabbath law. And he begins in verse 3 with what we might call the principle of human priority. The principle of human priority. Jesus says to them, have you not read what David did? Which is kind of a sarcasm, right? These are the guys who consider themselves the religious experts. They were the ones who were, who were adding all of the interpretation on top of the law. So for him to ask, it's like, oh, by the way, have you guys actually read the Bible? Have you guys actually read what David did when he, when he was hungry and those with him and he entered in the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which wasn't lawful for him to eat or those with him, but only the priest? I mean, you think this is bad what we're doing. Did you happen to read what David did? It's interesting, by the way, he doesn't really even point them to something about the Sabbath. He just takes them straight to a passage of Scripture that they would not have been able to reconcile in their perverted and superficial and self-righteous interpretation of the Scripture. He understood all this. And so he takes them right to this notion of something that they would have considered to be unlawful, like the Sabbath, like their Sabbath laws, that they could not untangle because of their superficial and their self-righteous reading in their rabbinic tradition. He reminds them of this story in 1 Samuel 21 when David was fleeing away from Saul in his vengeance and jealousy. He had been chasing David uh, down and they were fleeing away from him. They were famished and they came to the city of Nob, which is about a, a mile south of Gibeah. 
And it was at that time that the tabernacle had been located there. The permanent temple had not been built. It was still the tent, the tabernacle that moved around. So the tabernacle was there. And attending to the tabernacle that day was Ahimelech, the priest. Abiathar, Mark tells us, was the high priest. But it was Ahimelech, the priest, who was in the tabernacle that day. And David approaches him, his men, and they ask for food. Ahimelech answers David. And he says, there's no ordinary bread. But there is the consecrated bread, the bread of the presence, as Matthew says, or sometimes what we call the showbread. These were 12 loaves that were put out in two rows of six. They were laid out on a table, not in the temple itself, but in the actual inner courtyard, the place where only the priest could go. They were put out on this table with a blue tablecloth and some uh, gold plates, and they had along side of it some bowls of incense and some cups of wine, all of it very beautiful and all that stuff, a, like a, a, a beautiful table spread for a feast. And there were 12 loaves there to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and the table itself was really a symbolic visual act of worship before God. It was an expression with all 12 loaves as if you had 12 seats sitting there. It was an expression that God was spreading a table before Israel that week. That that week, that next seven days, He was going to provide bread for all 12 tribes of Israel. And what they would do is they would lay out this showbread, they would lay out this consecrated bread, and they would lay it out for the whole week, and at the end of the week, they would bake fresh bread, and then they would bring it in and exchange the old loaves for the new loaves, and the old loaves we're told, were to be eaten by the priest. It was the exclusive right of the priest. It was kind of a part of their inheritance uh, because they themselves were not primarily uh, farmers and raised their own grain. So this is the, the law. This is the way the law defined all of this. And yet Jesus points out that David took and ate the consecrated bread, which the law said was to be eaten by the priest alone. And, of course, it begs the question, why? Was it okay? Why didn't God condemn David for doing something like this? Why did the Jews not condemn? Does this mean that David's unfaithful? Does this mean that Ahimelech's unfaithful? None of that, really. Because Ahimelech understood this act of worship. He understood this consecrated bread. He understood what it meant. He understood when he placed it out there uh, week in and week out when he was on duty. He understood that he was expressing an act of worship that God is going to do what? He's always going to provide for his people. So for Ahimelech to have all this bread, to have act acted in this worshipful way about how God's going to provide for all of his people, for him to have it for himself, and then to have someone come and knock on his door, as it were, and say, hey, I'm hungry, can you give me, can me, can you give me food? For him to actually withhold that? You understand what kind of a mockery that would make of the whole ordeal? You understand what kind of a perversion that would be of what the whole law was all about? It's kind of like John, whenever he says to us over in, uh, I think it's First uh, John 3, 1 John 4, one of those, he says, if you who have abundance uh, have your brother or sister come to you in need and you say to them, be warm and be filled, 
and do not give to them. John says, how does the love of God dwell within you? Meaning it doesn't. You cannot have the love of God in you whenever you have the means to do something and someone comes along and you don't do anything about it. Well, Ahimelech understood this. It would be a mockery. It would be a, it would be a blasphemy for him to set out a brand new set of uh, uh, loaves of bread there and then to actually withhold that from the very Jewish people that God said he was trying to provide for. And so he does exactly what the whole temple system, the whole law would have symbolized and wanted him to do. He provides the bread to, to, to David, and David eats. And the implication is, this all was pleasing to God. This was God's provision. Now, Jesus understands all this, and he actually makes this point. He makes it more clear in Mark's gospel because in Mark's gospel, he adds this little saying in Mark 2.27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the whole idea of humanity, the whole idea of the people of Israel, this was always at the forefront of everything that God did. He didn't create you, he didn't create Jews to serve a law. He created the law to serve you. He didn't create the law. Uh, he didn't create uh, Israel to serve the law. He created the law to serve Israel. And the Sabbath is the same way. The Sabbath is not something to be served. The Sabbath is supposed to serve you. He made it to be a, a blessing to man. Now, this was all missing to the Pharisees in their interpretation. They didn't understand any of this. They did not understand the priority of humanity in the giving of the Sabbath law, in the following of the Sabbath law. In this kind of a twisted way, they had actually figured out a way to take God's law and actually intensify people's hardship, intensify their agony rather than relieve it, which was what the Sabbath law was all about. And Jesus wants to expose them. He wants to expose them in their hard-hearted blindness. And he doesn't stop there. You'll notice in verse 5, he goes on with another principle of understanding the, the Sabbath that they had twisted and, and, uh, uh, and overlooked. We might call it the principle of misplaced morality. The principle of misplaced morality. He uses another Old Testament example. Have you not read? Again, I mean, don't you guys read the Bible? Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? So it's kind of like, well, you know, there was a Himalek, and, and since we're talking about uh, that priest, let's go ahead and talk about all the priests. Do you not understand that all of the priests break the Sabbath every Sabbath? Get your head around that. All of the priests break the Sabbath every Sabbath. So by your standard, they would be profaned. By your standard, they would be unholy, and yet they're the ones who are offering the holy sacrifice. Now, what's Jesus saying here? What's the point of all this? Well, he's basically saying Sabbath 
rest is not a moral law. Sabbath rest is not a moral mandate. That's the point. The idea of resting on the Sabbath, there are, there are times when you would want to set that aside in order to serve God. Because Sabbath rest is not a moral mandate. Priests work on the Sabbath, and that's okay, because Sabbath rest is not moral. They have to. It's part of their job. I mean, I kind of get this. I mean, people are like, man, I can't wait for the weekend. I'm like, here it comes. You know, I'm going to be up all night, you know, early in the morning. I'm tired to go rest in the afternoon. I always take a huge nap on Sunday. I mean, Sabbaths, I mean, Sundays, excuse me, are tough for some of us who are maybe doing something, uh, leading in some way. But we do it gladly. We do it as unto the Lord, as an act of worship. Well, this is what he's saying about the priest. He's saying that the priest... Never rest. God gave them legitimate ways to work. He called them to work. And and while many people might take days of rest, and God certainly gave that to them as a part of the Sabbath, they stay home, they enjoy time with their family, they recover in in body and, and in spirit. Those are all legitimate. While that is legitimate, that is not moral. It's never to be taken that way and it certainly was never to be used as a hammer to beat people down even further you see and one of the ways that we know sabbath is not moral is just simply seeing the way the old testament applied it you have obviously here with the duties of the priest i mean they were slaughtering animals they were lighting fires they were lifting these carcasses up onto the altar they were burning incense around it they were pouring things over it i mean in any other context this would have been considered uh, really uh, intense labor tiresome labor but even when you go beyond the priest we understand that the sabbath Rest is not moral because it was prescribed even for non-moral beings. You understand that? See, some people think, well, you know, we got to have a Sabbath because if we don't have a Sabbath, uh, you know, people won't go to worship because Sabbath is about worship. It's really not. I mean, you can just read it in Deuteronomy 5, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy as to the Lord your God, as he commanded you six days, you shall labor and do all your work, but a seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord on it. You shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, and listen to this, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, none of it. Why? Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you up out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So listen to what he's saying here. You're supposed to keep the Sabbath. You're supposed to provide a day of rest, not only for you, but for all of your household, for all of your slaves, for all of your servants, and for your animals. Why? So the animals can go to the temple and worship? I mean, they'd stay far away from that place, most of them. They might get on the altar. No, this is not about worship. This is about rest. This is really, really, he defines it here. This is because God brought you up from Egypt. 
you were a slave. They drove you. You worked seven days a week. They never gave you any rest. And so you keep my Sabbath. Why? Because you were a slave and you don't treat people the way that you were treated. See, this is what? It's about mercy. This is all about mercy. Because the Israelites were supposed to remember that God rescued them from a burden of slavery. The Sabbath was not about securing uh, an extra day off necessarily for yourself as much as it was being careful not to lay a burden on your workers, on your children, on your, you know, anybody who are, is within your sphere, even your animals, even your animals. See, Sabbath restrictions aren't moral. The most important thing on the Sabbath is expressing this kind of mercy toward others to provide rest. Now, just to accentuate that, I invite you to look with me over at John chapter 5. Interesting little story here about the Sabbath. It was another Sabbath controversy. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem for a feast. We're not sure which feast it was, but it was a feast that was associated with a Sabbath. Could have been a feast that fell on a Saturday, a Sabbath day. It could have been one of the feasts where the, 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 the opening day was a Sabbath day. But whatever it was, there was this idea of a Sabbath and therefore an idea of avoiding any kind of work. And we read in verse 1, uh, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there, uh, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had been there already for a long time. And he said, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to uh, put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another uh, steps down before me. So here's this guy who's been trapped in this sort of, uh, sort of a uh, uh, horrible condition for 38 years. He's trapped in some sort of infirmity, some sort of handicap. And, and even, even when he tries to do something for himself, he tries to drag himself along. The people are always rumbling in front of him, and particularly with this pool. Now, this pool was uh, sort of a, a, a hot spot for superstition. Uh, these people had some sort of magical, fanciful ideas that somehow when the pool was stirred, if you could be the first one to hop in, you were going to be healed. Of course, it didn't happen. It didn't work. But these were the kinds of, of crazy superstitions. So here's a guy who's, who's trapped in some sort of disability, and he's trapped in a world of, of empty and hopeless superstition, and Jesus comes along and asks him, hey, you want to be healed? And God's like, well, yeah, I mean, can you, can you put me in the water? Jesus said to him in verse 8, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took his bed and walked. That's an amazing story. But the point in verse 5, or excuse me, verse 9, now that was a Sabbath day. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's a Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. I mean, who cares the fact that you've been lame for 38 years? Just don't carry that bed. And he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. I thought it was okay. I mean, the guy that just worked a miracle told me to do it. So, I mean, that's kind of pulling rank a little bit. 
And they said to him, who is the man who said this to, to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. So he, he's really oblivious. I mean, he doesn't know anything. I mean, he didn't know anything about Jesus. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know about his power to heal. He, he wasn't expressing any faith. He just wanted to be dropped in the water. This guy was healed not because he had personal faith. That, that is the, sort of that mistaken notion of modern-day faith healers. You know, if you can gin up enough faith and, and kind of believe hard enough, then God might work uh, miraculously among you. But this guy has zero faith. That was not an impediment to Jesus' healing because it's never an impediment to any true healer. They just heal by divine power, which Jesus had done. But this guy is clueless. He doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't believe in Jesus. Now, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may come upon you. So here he comes. He's healed him. Now he says, hey, I'm thankful that you're healed, but you need to understand you need to repent. You need to repent lest when you die, you go before God and eternal condemnation. That would be worse than 38 years of infirmity. So you need to repent. What do we read in verse 15? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Didn't listen. Unconcerned. He's an unbeliever. Verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So here you see again. Sabbath breaking. Animosity. Persecution. They want to kill him. All that brings us really down to the, the, the most profound point of the whole passage in verse 17 when Jesus answered them. He hears their criticism, he knows their animosity, and he throws this little hand grenade. My father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working, a present continuous tense there. My father is continuously working. Now, why is that significant? Because where does the idea of a Sabbath originally come from? It comes from the book of Genesis. It comes from God working for six days and then doing what? Taking a rest. And then once that rest is over, what is Jesus saying to us in John, John 5, 17? Ever since then, he has been continuously working. God is working on Sunday. God is working on Monday. God is working on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday. And guess what? God is working on Saturday. My father is always, always working. And that's why I'm always working. What is this telling us? The Sabbath is not moral. Do you want to know how to tell if something is moral? It's simple. Does it make you like God? God's the definition of righteousness. He's the definition of morality. So if God's never resting, guess what? Resting is not a part of morality. Resting is not part of being like God. But what is God doing? In all of that labor and all that work, what is he doing? He's lifting burdens off of people. 
He's relieving their distress, which is exactly what the Sabbath law was all about. It was all about lifting burdens off of those who are your employees and those who are in your household and those who are under your charge and your slaves and all that. It's all about relieving them. Why? Because the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus is telling us in so many different ways that the Sabbath rest is not moral. That is not something that makes you righteous. What makes you righteous? Concern for those who are oppressed. Concern for those who are under a burden. Concern for those who are under some sort of weight that you might have the ability to relieve. You want to follow the Sabbath, that's what you do. So healing a guy on the Sabbath, that's a no-brainer. Giving somebody a loaf of bread who comes and knocks on your door, that's a no-brainer. Cooking a meal to serve somebody, piece of cake. All of that stuff is really what the internal idea of the Sabbath is. See, these guys had taken it all and they just made it all external. It was all about sort of measuring themselves, proving themselves against one another, bolstering their own sort of pride and, and their own notion of righteousness, never realizing that their hard-heartedness, indifference, lack of concern was manifest day after day after day after day. Listen, they were Sabbath breakers, not just on Saturday. They were Sabbath breakers every day. Because God wants you doing this every day. I mean, part of the work week cycle that he has instilled into creation is that he wants us to take some time off of work. That is godly. That is righteous. He wants to have, he wants to have days on and he wants to have days off. That would be oppressive for you to take someone under your charge and just drive them into the ground by working and working and working and working and working them trying to drive up your margins and your profits and all those other things and not concerned for their overall physical and emotional and family health. But the issue isn't particularly what day. The issue is your concern. That's the issue. God is concerned. He's working. He's relieving burdens. Jesus is concerned. He's working. He's relieving burdens. And the implication is you ought to be. You ought to be as well. You know, this is the way God is. We, the, we do this because we want to be like God. He, he's all about relieving burdens. He's all about lifting up the oppressed. He codified it in a, a Sabbath law for His people. But you know, that, the Scripture says, was just a shadow of something. It was just sort of, a, sort of an obscure, misty image of something. Because the substance of that, Hebrews tells us, the substance of that, Colossians 2.17 says, is Christ. You see, God is about giving you rest, not just rest from physical work and burdens. He's about giving you rest spiritually. He is as eager, more eager, to take you in your beaten down, trodden down, anguished heart, burdened heart, and to lift the burden off of you and give you rest. 
You know, the scripture says he did that by Christ. That's why Christ came. In fact, the Bible calls Christ our Sabbath rest. He's actually the one who spiritually, he does for us spiritually what the physical outward Sabbath is supposed to do materially for people. And of course, Jesus knows all this and he's doing all this. He's well aware that what he's doing physically in acts of mercy is itself pointing to a greater spiritual reality. The problem with the Pharisees in their twisted, perverted view of themselves is that they were unwilling to ever admit they needed that kind of rest. Don't let that problem be yours. Don't be so twisted and perverted as to be hard-hearted and refuse that this world and its sin and your heart and your guilt has weighed you down. Don't stiffen your neck like these Pharisees thinking that you got nothing to answer for before God. Jesus is coming and he's offering this kind of rest. He's just inviting whoever's willing to take it to let him reach out and say, you're healed. You're forgiven. You're at rest in me. Father, we're grateful for this and we know there is more in the coming weeks to understand, but this introduction to this issue, this text this morning just gives us so much to ponder, so much to think about, so much to learn from. And we want to do that. We want to be those who embody in in our lives and in our spirits, that kind of mercy toward others. And we want to be those who embrace that kind of rest from our Savior. We thank you that you have been so merciful as to give us a Sabbath rest in Christ. And we bless you and praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen.